Welcome to the new episode of Let There Be Talk. It is Monday, January 14th, coming to you live from New York City. Episode number 456. 456. Think about that for a minute. That is a lot of fucking work. <laughs> All right, I'm out here in New York. Fantastic guest today. I was saying that in 2019, I'm going to get more into um, some comedy stuff on the podcast. I feel uh, it's time to bring that world around since 90% of my life is in stand-up. I need to bring that in and, uh, and bring in some comedy ears, bring in some audience that are uh, comedy fans. And what better way to do that than with the incredible international comic today, Mr. Jimmy Carr. Jimmy Carr is my guest. If you do not know who Jimmy Carr is, do yourself a favor right now, hit pause and go dive into the Jimmy Carr world on YouTube or Netflix or anywhere you find all your uh, comedy needs. This man is a legend in the, uh, in the global status of comedians. There's these global comedians out there, these comedians that are much bigger than just, uh, you know, the United States and that whole scene. These guys are uh, monumental in the comedy world. It was great to talk to Jimmy Carr. Jimmy Carr is exactly um, the type of person that I, I talk about a lot on here. You see somebody and you find out some uh, things that you have in common and next thing you know you have a new friend and that's I love when that happens, especially in the comedy world. Like, you know, when I met Kevin Christie, we talked over watches and, you know, numerous people. Bill Burr, we talked over music and cars. Marin, we talked guitars and, and music and films. And that kind of stuff, when you start bonding with people, you're like, this is, this is amazing, man. We're, we look like two people that probably wouldn't hang out. But at the end of the day, we have so much in common. And I don't think you get a lot of that these days because of the quote unquote, what I call digital friends. A zillion people out there have all these digital friends. I got 4,000 friends on such and such, but you don't know anything about them because you've never had a conversation. And that's, that's what's great about the old school conversation. Sit down, you talk to somebody, and you go, oh, 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 wait a minute. You like 70s Porsche 911s? So do I. Oh, you like vintage watches? So do I. And I think we do definitely need to get back into that, talking to people and juicing our minds. You know, that's a drug. That's a drug to your mind so it doesn't just shut down. That was the great thing about Jimmy Carr. I had no idea that he loved watches. A friend of mine said oh, Jimmy Carloff's watches. You should talk to him about watches. And I ran into him at the Comedy Cellar. And next thing you know, we're talking hours on watches, cars, architecture, comedy, all kinds of stuff. So it's great to have him on. It's great to have him as a friend. I, I, just, I just love I love that about doing comedy the last nine years. I have some incredible friends from it. Uh, we recorded this live at the Comedy Cellar, which was a, a great thrill for me. That place has such an energy. We just set up in one of the booths and, and recorded the episode. I hope you guys do enjoy it. Don't forget to see his new TV show on Netflix right now. He has a game show called The Fix, and that is right now on Netflix. You can go there and watch that and also watch for him always out on tour somewhere in the world. Jimmy Carr. Before I do get into the episode, I want to give a shout out to some of the Patreoners, brand new Patreoners. People ask me, how do I hear the bonus episodes? I have them all up on Patreon. There's 18 of them right now. I put one out a week 
And it's uh, for all the great supporters of Let There Be Talk. You can go to patreon.com slash Dean Del Rey and donate. Become a Patreoner of this podcast and crack into some, uh, some bonus episodes. And also going to be hopefully adding some video content on Patreon real soon. Upcoming shows, March 7, 8, 9, I will be in Houston with Joey Diaz at the Improv. Also, April, uh, I think 11 through 14, you can catch me at the Comedy Castle in Detroit. And at the end of April, I will be at the Comedy Cellar in Vegas again at the Rio. Those are some great upcoming dates. I can't wait to see you guys. Uh, I'm fired up to do the Comedy Castle. I've never been there, and I'm headlining so that's going to be a great, great weekend. Uh, leave a review on iTunes. Trying to get to 1,500. I'm at 1,356. And a lot of people left some reviews last week. I got about 20 new reviews. So thank you for that. Leave a review on iTunes if that's where you listen to this podcast. And subscribe. It really helps out the uh, podcast. And if you are in New York City in the next few weeks, I'll be at the Comedy Cellar a lot so just check my Twitter or Instagram. I love you guys. Let's keep it going. Let's get into the episode right here. Thanks for all your support. Keeping the candles lit. Here he is, Mr. Jimmy Carr. Hey, what's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Let There Be Talk. Fantastic guest today, comedian Jimmy Carr. How are you, buddy? Well, I, I can't believe your luck. Um, it's, you know, I really feel like I'm nervous. This could be my big break. This could turn things around for me. Um, <laughs> uh, God, I hope I feel like I've already messed it up. Damn it. Yeah. Um, great. Well, what are we talking about? Just stuff. Well, you know, I, I, first of all, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about. I didn't really know who you were until How you start. dare you? Until you know, until you started coming around the comedy store and the roast battle stuff. Because I'm a newer comic, and I didn't, you know, I don't know any actually international comics because I've only been doing it like nine years. Well, I, I've, uh, let me think. I've been going about maybe, maybe twice that. I've been going about eighteen years, and uh, but I mean, it seems easier to get started in the UK than it is in America. Like, I meet people at the comedy store, the comedy cellar, they've been going, you know, 10 years and they've really kind of not got, anyway, they're not headlining, they're not doing their own shows. Uh, it's a different kind of dynamic here. It's more difficult to get stage time. It's so much easier in the UK. And I think it's primarily because of the Edinburgh Festival. So we have a very good club scene, but then there's this huge arts festival in Scotland every year, which if you're an American comic and you're listening to this, check it out because you go there for a month and you put on a show. And it's not like Montreal where... In Montreal, everyone's having a great time because it's by invitation. So everyone that's there is already pretty damn good. And, and they've the picked them out. Yeah. yeah. And the thing with Edinburgh is it's people that have never, you know, done a show before. And they go, well, I'm just going to put on a show. Let's see who, see who turns up. And some people have a nightmare and the cream rises to the top. And it's kind of a fabulous... Um, it's, it's just a fabulous experience to go and do that. And then also to go and check it out. I mean, it's... You learn so much from watching. I always think the best comics are people that are pretty into comedy before they start it. I'm always very suspicious of stand-ups when I go, what have you seen recently? Who are you loving? And they go, meh, I don't really, I don't really see a lot of stand-ups. You go, That's so insane, right. right? It's like musicians where you go, the only thing I ever ask musicians is, what records are you listening to right now? Right. Because you go, well, they're going to be the expert in that, right? Yeah, Absolutely. Now, when you started comedy 18 years ago, were you into American comedy? or were Yeah, you? I mean, I, I think stand-up is a... I think it's an American art form. There's only really three. Um, there's jazz music, the Western, and stand-up comedy. Those are the truly American art forms. And I think stand-up comedy is an American language. Uh, you know, from... Uh, whether it's George Carlin or Lenny Bruce or, you know, and you, can, you can trace it right the way back to sort of the music hall. And, and, and you know, the, um, Britain had a great music hall scene as well. But I think that kind of the one man on stage telling jokes, as we understand it today, maybe George Carlin in the UK, it would have been someone called Billy Connolly um, that came out of the kind of um, uh, the music scene and was doing songs and then a bit of patter between songs and then eventually more patter than songs, eventually just patter. And... Uh, you know, that kind of stand-up thing of going... I, I'm, I'm a huge comedy fan before I ever started doing it. Yeah, oh yeah. Which same, I think is the way to kind me. of be. And I, I like... I'm quite old-fashioned, really, as a comedian. I'm quite... 
I'm out of step with what's going on in comedy at the moment, which is very much uh, confessional stories about your life, whereas I'm just, I'm telling jokes. It's, it's very binary jokes. Yeah. They're either funny or they're not. They, and if you think I'm funny, you're right. And if you think I'm not funny, you're right. But you could not like me as a personality and still have a great time at the show. You could still really enjoy the jokes and think, I don't really like who this guy is, not buy into the character, but they're just little bite size. It's all fastballs. Right. That's the best description of my act I heard. A friend just went, it's just all fastballs. Yeah. You never take a moment to talk about anything else. I'm never sure what you think about anything. It's just jokes. And that's always what I wanted. Almost like a, I don't have uh, ADHD, but it feels like my act is designed for someone with it. You just go, well, just one joke to another joke. There's no link. There's no point of view. In some of the jokes, I'm married. In some of the jokes, I'm not married. I always took it as, as read that the audience live in the moment and they just want to laugh. Yeah. You're preaching to the choir. Whenever you're playing to a, uh, you know, a comedy club, people have come out with the intention to laugh. So you're already way ahead of the game because everyone's sitting there going, yeah, we want to have a great time. We want to laugh. We need this. And there's a weird fact about laughter that you laugh, you're eight times more likely to laugh uh, when you're in a crowd than when you're on your own. You could watch the greatest comedy show you've ever seen, the best stand-up special on Netflix, on a plane with headphones, and you will smile. You may chortle to yourself. You may laugh a, a little. You, but to laugh out loud, the endorphin releasing, I can't, I've got to catch my breath. Well, you get that in the comedy cellar every single night. Right. And sometimes if you watch the tape of those acts, you'd go, oh, I don't, I don't know if I'm so into that guy. Yeah. But something about the atmosphere and the shared experience. And it, I mean, laughter predates language by about a million years yeah it's uh we use a different part of our throat uh to laugh than we do to speak and it, it was it's one of the main ways that i think we we were able to specialize because what laughter is is it's remote tickling it's remote grooming so if you look at silverback gorillas they're trying to groom each other and they get to about 50 apes and suddenly you know by the time it gets to 60 silverbacks they go i don't even know this guy he hasn't groomed me for ages and so they start their own new group the thing about laughter is it allows larger numbers, and larger numbers allowed specialization. There's a thing called the Dunbar number, which is about 150. You hear it talked a lot when people talk about social media, because you can actually have about 150 friends in life. And you know, people are talking about their Facebook page, oh, I've got a million friends. Yeah. Bullshit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They put on a show and see how many come out. Yeah. <laughs> Quite right. Quite it's, right. It's got to be difficult to do uh, the type of comedy you do because there's so many jokes that have to be written because it's a machine gun kind I, of I fire. I suppose. You know, you the, know? the analogy I would draw and have, have drawn is um, if you're, if you're a, um, a storyteller yeah. um, if, and, and you're, you're doing that type of comedy, you're building, you're trying to chip away everything that isn't a horse from the big bit of marble. And that can go badly or it can go well, but it's, it's one big, you know, it's a big swing every five or six minutes. Whereas I'm building with Lego blocks. It's just one at a time. So I'm just constantly making notes and I might need 300 good jokes for a show. For an hour. But, but you, can, uh, you can build that kind of pretty slowly over time. And suddenly, you know, once you've got kind of, you know... 150, you start, start to go, well, actually, I, could, I can fill something with that. I can, I can make that work. And then it grows a little bit on stage, but it's, it's actually a, it's a joyful way to experience the world because you're, you're, sort of, you're looking at the world through rose-tinted glasses. You're, every, you're seeing everything in terms of wordplay and fun uh, and, and just your, your loving language. Do you ever steer off of the, the formula, like crowd work, if you get yeah. heckled or anything? I do a ton of crowd work. I'd be fairly... I'd be fairly well known now as a guy that deals with hecklers in terms of the, uh, the millions of hits for the clips. Yeah. So that's become a thing at my shows, to the extent that I even do a thing now where I, I have a heckle amnesty at the show and just say, you know, come and have a go, bring, bring what you got. Yeah. My thing on heckles, it's always, you know, it's the, it's win-win. It I don't have the monopoly on having a great sense of humor. In fact, if you come out and see me live like in Europe or around the rest of the world, if you're, if you're coming out to see my show, then I'm already preaching to the choir. We have the same sense of humor. We would be, I always think with my audience, we would probably, if we met under other circumstance, be friends. If we laugh at the same things, that's kind of what a friend is. So the idea that they've paid to come and see me because they, it resonates, my sense of humor resonates with them. It's like, okay, we get on. So the idea, if someone says something brilliantly funny and it gets a massive laugh, great. If, if I say something back and put them down and it gets an even bigger laugh, great. If they win, great. It's win, win, win. Yeah, for the show. 
Yeah, I'm trying to think of my favorite heckle. All my favorite heckle stories are Edinburgh related. Like I did a thing, I remember doing Edinburgh years ago and a friend of mine died on stage. I mean, upstairs room of a bar, maybe 50 people in the audience, but I mean, he was getting nothing. And a funny guy, getting nothing from the audience. And just this, it was almost like a stage whisper. It wasn't an aggressive shout to the comedian, but, but in the gap where he was so used to doing his act, in the gap where the laugh should have been, silence fell. A man turned to his friend and said, there used to be a pool table in here. <laughs> oh, 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 man worst, alive. Worse than crickets. Oh. I mean, it's like, it's almost, and all that that suggests, remember this place used to be fun. Yeah, that's all that suggests, yeah. man. Oh, my God. The other one, the one that happened to me was, was at Late and Live, this gig. It doesn't even start until 1 o'clock in the morning. I was uh -huh. on about 2.30. And people are drunk, drunk and Scottish and aggressive and fun you know it's just the best room and I was I, I, you know I, you don't want to say you're killing but I was doing well as a, as a younger comedian I was doing great and a guy you know feed line punchline laugh feed line punchline laugh and then there was a, a shout from the audience my mum died of cancer I, I you know took it logically took me back I went well I wasn't talking about mothers and I wasn't talking about cancer and he said no but it was funnier than this. Oh, no. Fuck, I mean, you win. Wow. You win. Wow, man. Now, so you started by doing the Edinburgh at a, at a young age I started as a doing comic? the clubs in London and right. then immediately um, went up to Edinburgh and did shows with friends. You know, like 20 minutes each or 15 minutes each in an hour. And it was pretty, pretty fun. Did you already establish your style early on, or did uh, it change uh, over the it, period? I mean, I think the, the, the old adage is very true. It, it picked me. Yeah. I don't think there's anyone that sort of goes, oh, I decided I was going to be an observational comic. I mean, good luck with that. Yeah. It's yeah. just you, you, what makes you laugh makes you laugh, and the kind of jokes that you like. And I suppose the thing that progressed as I, uh, the first couple of years, it was a little bit of a cleaner set. Uh, and then and then eventually, I think it was maybe the volume that I had to come up with. I felt like I needed to do a new show every year. And just the laughs are bigger, the ruder the stuff. And I've always had quite a, a, a base sense of humor in terms of, uh, I like swearing and I like talking about filthy stuff. And I think I get it from my mother. I genuinely, t I mean, my mother was no stranger to, uh, you know, using the C word around the house. It was a very, I found it very odd when I went to school and people kind of thought cursing was a big deal. You kind of go, you know, when kids kind of swear and think it's weird yeah. and they, they kind of enjoy it. I never... She was going, well, yeah, of course, yeah. Standard language. That's how grown-ups talk. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, when I've watched you, of course, because I've seen you at the roast battle and uh, around the store, you would have a clipboard. Is that? Do you have a clipboard during your shows? No. No. No, that's when I do club sets, I'll, I'll want to try new stuff always. And I'm not learning anything until I know it's funny. Yeah. And then it became an affectation kind of early in my career to kind of have a clipboard and be trying new stuff. And just I kind of went with it. I don't yeah. know why, really. I mean, it's kind of, I suppose it was that thing of going, I write more than I have the capacity to learn. <laughs> so yeah. I sometimes just go, oh, well, I'll just write it down and see. And kind of taking the notes on. I, I never like the, um, like the sneaky glance at a watch. Oh, yeah. Or the sneaky glance at notes. Yeah. Like if you're going to look at your watch, brazenly look at your watch and go, right, another four minutes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, 20 jokes. You know, that's the way to do it. Because the audience, you haven't, you're not fooling anyone. Yeah. You know, yeah. If you, yeah, with the old drive-by glance. Yeah, I'm <laughs> just going to just check my cuffs. Uh, really? <laughs> they can see what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, now, so at, you've been doing comedy 18 years, and uh, I, I always look at somebody and I realize you dress very well. Uh, were you, did you always dress like that? Yeah, as, I always turned up in a suit. I think, I think I did my first gig in uh, jeans and a sweater. And... Uh, didn't feel right about it at all. I was thought, you know, I'm, I kind of, I like that idea of turning up looking as if you're going to work. And I always thought a suit was a very respectful sort of way to present oneself. Yeah. Um, so I suppose it's, it's partly that. It's also, I just think men look better in suits. I think like if you're going to kind of, you know, do a show, if a thousand people or two thousand people are going to turn up and see you, you want to look your best. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Not an ego free thing. I also think like as you get older, it's that great thing if you look kind of right. Like, if you're wearing, I mean, I don't know what, you're, you're dressed as a 15-year-old. It's frankly, <laughs> it's, you know, but it's not dignified, is it? Come on, at some point, you've got to go, well, I mean, 
I appreciate you're comfortable. Yeah. And I would wear what you've got on if I was, I don't know, maybe gardening or in the house. <laughs> other than that, I mean, it really feels, feels inappropriate. Well, to me, I always looked at it as like I felt it would be weird if I showed up in a suit because I've never owned a suit. So you were a musician initially, uh-huh. right? So what, what, what was that? What were you in? I played music for 25 years, um, singer, songwriter, guitar player. What was the band? I know the band, Dean right? Del Rey, no, just oh. Dean Del Rey, and I toured all over the place for years, and I've just been like, I always liked the look of rock and roll, of looking like not having a job, is, was my look. Yeah, I suppose it's, a, it's, it's always kind of, um, it's a badge of honor, I suppose, the idea of saying, I didn't have to own a tie. Yeah. I, you know, I never had to dress up for work. I never had to wear a uniform of any, so to speak. And being a musician, but I suppose there's a uniform like any other. In, it know, is a, a uniform. Of course, you're going to wear like, some I mean, denim. Neil Young dresses the way he lo- dresses. That's his look, you know? Yeah. And yeah, he I needs more at, plaid in his life. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but I love, I love guys that all have a look. When I started comedy, everybody was wearing fucking, you know, Tosh was big, and they are all wearing cardigans, and, and then all of a sudden it was the hoodie, you know, and I didn't want to be any of those comics, and I looked immediately different with sleeve tattoos and a rock shirt and, you know, boots. Yeah, I suppose it's that thing of, like, going, I quite like uh, being at a club and people going, oh, that guy's clearly going to be on in a minute. Yeah. Rather than, I think a lot of people look as if they could, well, is he in the audience? Is he on? Yeah, Who knows? yeah, yeah. It's yeah. very, um, and I suppose you can't not communicate in what you wear and how you present yourself. I always think uh, it doesn't matter how relaxed I look on, on stage as well. I'm going to open my mouth and certainly people in America are going to go, right. Well, I mean, this guy's, this guy's in charge. Look yeah. at, listen to that. <laughs> he's, he's the baddie in a film, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, it's right. that voice. Here he comes, the British villain. Yeah. Well, I suppose, you know, that also you can't, you know, I think a lot of people uh, early on, you know, when you watch people starting out in comedy, you see people going to make the mistake of trying to be someone, something that they're not. Oh, yeah. And the, I don't think people care if you're fancy or not fancy or rich or poor, or whatever. The audience are very relaxed about it. But not being authentic is an issue. Absolutely. That's why I felt if I put on something else, I wouldn't be authentic because this has yeah. been me all my life. You so know? what happened with the music thing then? Because I think there's a... There's often that, that thing sort of said of like comedians are kind of people that wanted to be in show business but had no discernible talent. Yeah. And so we had to just go, what, some jokes? Maybe some jokes will do? Yeah. Maybe it make you laugh while we're, while we're on the bus? But I think there's, there's something about, I know a lot of comedians that have got a great sense of, uh, sorry, a lot of musicians rather, Big that time. have a great sense of humor and great kind of fun. Yeah. I think I always wanted to do comedy. Uh, but when I was a kid, there wasn't kids doing comedy. There wasn't like comedy camps. There wasn't YouTube. One of the things I love about comedy is there aren't kids doing it now. I mean, yeah. there are. Yeah. But the people that become huge in comedy uh, are not people that show business would choose to put in, in that place. Exactly. You know, when you look at the music industry, when you look at your, um, I don't even know who the pop stars are these days, but Dua Lipa or Ariana Grande, you know, young, incredibly attractive people are the pop stars yeah. of the day and they're picked by record companies and they're incredibly talented in their own right but they haven't sort of you know had to pay their dues for years because no. you look at a lot of the comics that that are lauded and respected and they're people that have been around for a long time and they've kind of risen up and you go well you you can hype as much as you want in comedy but ultimately it, people come out for laughs yeah and you've got about two minutes of good grace if you look fantastic on stage and then people just go yeah but we came out to laugh yep we think that that documentary comedian by Jerry Seinfeld which I loved is it. but that idea that he was kind of he was kind of showing you what it's like up there you know he's you couldn't get a bigger or better comedian than Jerry Seinfeld and then he's on stage and the audience give him two minutes yep. of good grace they're very excited he walks on and then it's yeah get to the funny bit though yeah and incidentally it better be relatable I like when the one guy's like Hey, it used to be funny, you know, and it's just kind of like they realized, you know, he, he's the, the shine goes away real quick. Hmm. Uh, that's Seinfeld. And now you better be as funny as you were the last time I saw you. Yeah. You know, or else you're not funny anymore, hmm. which is wild, a wild thing, you know. No, I, I, I love that. I love I the love idea it. that it's uh, it, it's about uh, that moment and being able to kind of produce it, being able to, uh, you know, I mean, what Seinfeld's done since the end of Seinfeld as well, it's just extraordinary. Yeah. Just the quality of his work and, and the fact that he kind of went back to, I mean, everybody went away from stand-up, but I suppose that thing of, 
um, made the best sitcom ever, I think. I yeah. Think there's anything else that really stands up that way. Biggest of all time, most original. Well, also the language. I rewatched it recently, and the language of Seinfeld is so on point. The you know, the the, the j- just the the language that we that we use. The, you know, the what a master of one's own domain, or the the close talker, or whatever whatever those things are. What are those phrases that he all threw that in there? Stuff. You go, oh, that's all from. I suppose it's that perfect meeting of my favorite sort of comment on stand-up comedy was from Alan Havey. He's uh, a wonderful comedian and man. He's great. And he said, uh, he said, we're out for ourselves, but in it together. I think that's a great description of what comics are like as people. Um, and the idea that Larry David and Seinfeld kind of came together, it was like a perfect moment, a perfect kind of mix of those two characters. It's unusual to have people, uh, like a true collaboration like that. Also, if you watch the pilot, how immediately they tooled it to change it right away the characters you know like they were Mm. different on the pilot yeah it was a waitress right in the pilot yeah and then like I think uh, George was like successful I can't remember now because I watched them all I was a Seinfeld Mm. addict I'd go see him live all the time anytime he was playing I loved the show and he was really him Chris Rock those were the comics for me all through the 80s into the 90s you Mm. know well Chris, Chris Rock's got an extraordinary thing I always think, like, stylistically, of setting up a premise that the audience are not happy with. Yeah. And then just going, yeah, yeah you're going to be fine. Four minutes' time. Give me four minutes. I'm going to change your mind about everything. Yeah. Like, it's just a wonderful kind of way of performing. I think, yeah, it is, I mean, you're very lucky in the kind of the people that are around now that have really put down a body of work. Yeah. So that oh, yeah, Seinfeld or Chris study. Rock or, or um, you know, I mean, uh, you know, Dave Chappelle now, it feels like he's really putting out some stuff. You know, those, those shows on Netflix last year, I thought, were just superb. Yeah. And the idea that you just, you know, put out two shows in the same day. And it was like, oh, God, there's been nothing for years. I know, right? Yeah, I mean, those guys are just... It's funny because when I came in, I was so, so dumb. I was thinking, oh, all the comics are like my age. So uh, this is cool, you know, and then you forget these guys are 30-year men, 40-year men, you know, Seinfeld, uh, you know, um, Chris Rock. Those guys are all like 30, 25 years doing comedy. Yes, it is something you get better at. I mean, I think the same with musicians tend to get better at their craft. You know, the good ones anyway. You know, it's, it's that thing where you go, you become, I suppose, when you first start, it's that thing of like, it's a new voice and it's very exciting and people from the outside world I think just look at trajectory show business is all about trajectory it's all about where you were last year and where you are this year so if you sell out Madison Square Garden next year people will lose their fucking minds they'll be like oh wow have you seen this it's incredible if Chris Rock does it's like "Eh, not a biggie yeah isn't that crazy it's it's weird it's weird how quickly it becomes like normalized that's really bizarre probably the last person I saw it happen to was uh, Amy Schumer yeah who was you know a great comic well, you know, in Montreal, I don't know, six years ago, maybe seven years ago, I guess. And then it that movie popped, and then suddenly you're on the front of People magazine. And it's like, oh, it's like a like an another thing has happened. I saw her do stand up recently as well in up in Montreal. Yeah, unbelievable hour. It's the new the new special, I think, that will be coming out next year. Fantastic, but it's that weird thing where it happens so quickly and it becomes like a, a huge thing, and you go. The weird thing, I remember seeing her afterward. The first time I saw Amy after it had gone really massive. And going, oh, no, I'm, I'm Jimmy Carr, I don't know. And she went, yeah, yeah, we know each other. But it was a weird thing where I kind of went, oh, will you remember? Did they somehow take that away when you become famous? Huge. Yeah, you go, yeah. Of course right? not, I'm being a fucking idiot. Ah. Well, also, sometimes you do have that thing because some people go crazy and just forget everyone, you know? Well, I, th- that, I, don't, I don't think that happens a lot in stand-up. I think Not that happens in stand-up, but in when people, music, music or, or movies. movies. Yeah, I think that's about the people that the, uh, you know, uh, surround them. I, don't think, I think stand-ups have a special thing where all we really want to do is make other comics laugh. That's it. I mean, there's a huge thing on you know, becoming successful and make, getting an audience and finding success. And then why do people come to the Comedy Cellar? Why do people want to hang out here or the store in Los Angeles and spend time sitting with Esty at that table in Nome and hanging out? It's because we're looking for um, uh, the love our fathers didn't give us, I, yeah. I guess, or something. Yeah. Yeah. I always thought that was my, my unifying theory of comedy is sick parents. It's absolutely true. You know any comic that doesn't have a sick parent, either mentally or physically, 
sick parent that needed cheering up. You needed to make things right. I always say the tears of a clown thing never really resonated with me. I'm a pretty happy-go-lucky guy most of the time. Yeah. But the sick parent thing, yeah. Absolutely. 100%. At what point do you start having some success in your career? Like early. Early. Early, yeah. Maybe maybe two years in, I got my first TV show. Wow. Uh, I, but I worked in a way that was not normal, in, certainly for North America. I don't think that normal for here. For, I've never done less than, well, the first five years, I never did less than 300 shows in a year. Yeah, the same way. So as soon as I started, I went, I was about 26, and I felt like, oh, my, I missed it. Shit. I missed it. I'm too old to do this now. Oh. Okay, I better really make good on I like I love it. I'm going to do it all the time. I'm going to go out every night. If I'm not at a show watching it, I'm going to be on stage. And I found I was very good at getting up. I was very good at sort of turning up at a club and going, can you put us on? And they go, yeah, all right. Yeah, I was the same way, and I started at 44. Imagine what well, you, I thought. You, you, it was too late for you. Yeah, was it? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's over for you, man. Well, they asked me to tell you. I've definitely realized that. <laughs> well, it's weird, though, that thing of... Uh, there was a great article, I think it was in Vice magazine a couple of years ago, and they were talking about Mark Maron and saying guys that didn't make any sense earlier in their careers. Like, I think there's a strong case to say when you look at Mark Maron, he didn't make any sense as a 20-year-old comedian. And now in his 40s, 50s now, 50s, yeah. He, but we, we made, made it big in his 40s, and you go, yeah, because you made sense in that get-off-my-lawn yeah, yeah. that you bring to the table <laughs> yeah. only makes sense now. And I think that people eventually catch up to what they're talking about, you hmm. know? Like, imagine Bill Hicks right now. He'd just be crushing it out there. Yeah, I think Bill Hicks was like a bigger deal in the UK than he was in the States. Right, right. He was big in the Certainly UK. Certainly at the time. I mean, he was like selling theaters in a way that he absolutely. wasn't doing Absolutely. He was big in the UK, but I'm saying in the States now, eventually people would catch up to like everything he'd been talking about and been like, wow, this, is, this guy's a genius, you yeah, know? Yeah, he's, uh, he's pretty great. Once you start getting successful, uh, you and I bonded over a lot of uh, stuff that we love, cars and watches. I would say some of my best friends in comedy, I've uh, made through watches, which is unbelievable by talking, you know, somebody like well, you and I look it, like we wouldn't hang out at all, and it, then we is bond. It, is it not the, the kind of the weird thing of like the only thing men can shop for? Like we're, like we're quite good at, there's something about hunting for a watch or hunting for a car and, like, and looking at old stuff. Because I think certainly with cars, almost certainly with watches as well, there's, there's nothing around today. There's nothing made today in cars that isn't better than a vintage car. Right. There's nothing. Like you buy the cheapest Ford you can find, the cheapest Nissan you know, piece of shit for 10 grand. It's going to have electric windows. It's going to have a, a heating system that works. It's going to start 100% of the time. It's never going to need a service. You're never going to need to run it in. It's, it's never going to need an oil change. I mean, it's just, it's a perfect vehicle. Yep. 100% of the time. And yet it has no character, no soul. There's, there's nothing about it that kind of, the, that makes you love it. And there's something about old cars, I find. There's something about vintage vehicles that, that you kind of go, it's just satisfying it's just somehow and i don't know whether i'm not um you know uh, you know re rewarding the younger me i think you kind of oh, you, yeah you live kind of once in the moment and then you live i think often often i think a thing with men is you know um you're, you're sort of rewarding the 14 year old self 100 percent. wouldn't wouldn't me at 15 think this is cool yeah uh and it's yeah i think that's a and kind of why not as well? Why not kind of have that thing? I've got a theory on cars and watches. Yeah. Okay, so here's my unifying theory on cars and watches. You can have six. That's it. That's my whole theory. Yeah, I'll, I will expand. So Six cars and six watches? Six cars, six watches. Yep. So if you want to buy another car, you can't buy a car and then sell one. No, you have to sell a car and then buy one. If you want another watch, you have to sell one and then buy one. And then it becomes a very interesting kind of thing of going, okay, not that you know, money is uh, you know, a factor here, but what would your six be? If you could just have six cars, if you could just have six watches, what would you pick? What, would, what, what are the kind of um, the, the best ones for you? And it's, it's interesting when you get, you know, if you're into these things, you can kind of chat about them ad infinitum. I think it's an interesting thing with all walks. I mean, you could talk about comedians. What six comics would you put on the bill of your ultimate night? Why would you pick the number six? I can't, I like, it seems like a manageable number. Right. It's also how many cars fit in my driveway. Yeah, yeah. 
I if that's a great great way to go to think about it. Because um, otherwise, you know, you meet someone who's like into watches, and they go, "Yeah, I've got thirty watches," and you go, "Yeah." I mean, it feels to me like you're buying things on the basis of you know, like you, you bought a you know a, a, a Rolex Daytona or a Big Red, and you, you you've got four of them. Why have you got four of them? Have one that's right. Yep. Have one that's the perfect thing, the right code for you, the right year, just everything you want in a. It's that one. That's the one that speaks to you. Because these objects are. For better, for worse, there is a spiritual, a, a, a connection to them. You know, if you get into an old car and drive it, it does something to you. You connect with it or you don't. Some of them are a bit meh. Yeah, exactly. It's funny because that I, I always look at watches by flipping up. So to get to the ultimate one that I wanted. So, yeah, you flip up to the ultimate double red, red sub, let's say. Okay, now I've got that. Now you flip up till you get to the ultimate Daytona. And, but I never understood having like five Daytonas or, or you know, six Submariners or, you know, because yeah. they're they're, there's a little samey, samey to them. Of course, they're all different, but you're like, it's a sub, you know, get yeah, the ultimate so. sub. It's also how much, you know, how much love do you have in your heart? Yeah. <laughs> how much how much can you give to these things? How much can you enjoy them? Yeah. I think that thing of like having a watch and wearing it is the thing. Like I don't understand that other thing as well. The thing I love about Jay Leno more than anything else almost. I remember he, he took me the first time I ever did the Tonight Show. Did like 5 minutes on it and uh, he took me out afterwards. He took me on a date. Yeah. Well, this is how long ago it was like ter- the new Terminator movie was out. Whoa. Terminator Three, maybe I think the third one. Now, anyway, he he went. What are you doing after the show? Because he knew as a stand-up, like from Britain, I bet this guy's got nothing planned after yeah. the show, and the show finishes at five. He went. We're going to go and see this new movie. Arnie, Arnie's on tomorrow. Come see the movie. And they took me in this beautiful vintage, like a late '60s Corvette, gorgeous machine. Oh, man. Uh, and like went went over to the Universal lot. And we watched the movie and chatted about cars. Took me to the garage. And like, he drives these cars every day. A I new love car it. every day. But it's not like he's McLaren. He's not like going, oh, this is now worth $15 million. I better keep this in the garage under lock and keys. Going, no, you want to, let's try and get this to 100 on the freeway. Yeah. Let's try and enjoy this thing. I, love I think the that. idea of someone going, I bought the Paul Newman Daytona and I've got it at home in a safe and I'm going to um, sell it at auction uh, two months after I die, uh, you know, to yeah. someone else who's going to keep it in a safe. What are you doing? You yeah, shouldn't be allowed to own it. That's so boring. That's it, so boring. That's why I like Kirk Hammett, Metallica. He's got, you know, he's got a million dollar Les Paul. He plays it right on stage every night. I just love that. I think vintage guitars are going to be the new. Have you seen this thing, the Fenders, recently? Yeah. Fender have had a thing recently where everything, because when did they sell the company? Like 1964, 65, something like that? Well, they like sold it in 65, uh, 66. It gets it to CBS. Yeah. So anything before pre-CBS, that. Pre-CBS, yeah. pre it's uh, called pre-CBS, pre-65. But that seems to be that. For me, that's if I was going to be a collector of anything now, yeah. and I'm kind of thinking of, I play the guitar very, I mean, I can play chords is all I can play, but I really like guitars. I kind of think vintage guitars is a really interesting way to go because I don't think there's anything more beautiful to put in your home oh, than a guitar on a stand. You kind of go, well, that looks just terrific. It's insane, right? Yeah, it's like a... Well, 10 years ago, New York Times said vintage guitar is the best inve- investment ever. Uh, they've kind of sealed well, the last the last ten years. The yeah. best investment class of anything has been vintage cars. Oh, vintage cars! Vintage cars have been the investment class the last ten years. Not wine, not stocks, not yeah. gold. Vintage cars have been the thing, and I still think there's room for more because they're not they're, they're, because of the safety laws now. And God bless the safety laws. They're, they're, I mean, they're very sensible, but it means that you'll never have a car as beautiful. Never uh, again. It'll it'll just won't happen because the design is could tell that you go. Well, actually, now if you if you crash into a pedestrian, you have to give them a fighting chance. Yeah. Uh, whereas it used to be. I mean, good <laughs> luck, everyone. There's a spike on the front of this. See you later. Yeah. Do you buy into the notion? And I kind of do a little bit though, with vintage cars that the millennials don't care. So who's going to buy them later on? Will they start dropping on the back end? Um, and maybe fuel goes away and they're not worth shit. Uh, no, no, I don't buy that at all. But no. I mean, I think that's an interesting thing because what are you buying them for? So, like, you have to question, like, I think the way that I rationalize buying something that's expensive for myself, and I wasn't able to do it for years, was to go, oh, well, it's kind of actually 
I might as well have this in a bank account. You know, I bought that that Patek and it's doubled in value since I bought it. And yeah. Great. But actually, I'm never going to sell it. Yeah, I mean, maybe. Maybe I'll be on my uppers one day and I'll need to get rid of it. And, they're, you know, it's a, it's a, they're pretty easy things to unload. It's quite a liquid asset. I think the thing about watches is the Chinese market will always keep that floating. Yeah. The Chinese market is because I don't know, I'm sure people are aware, but the gifting of watches is such a huge thing culturally there. And actually, there are so few, uh, you know, good watches being made. It's like that vintage thing as well. From the year of someone's birth becomes a very important well, that's thing. That's always and a big deal. That's yeah. always been that's always been something. So I think vintage watches you're very safe. I think the same with vintage cars. Like they're not going to be cars that are that beautiful. Now, will someone come up with a conversion kit? I just I just put down for the um, there's a new Jaguar E-Type coming yeah. out, which is electric. Yeah. Um, you're showing me photos, and I had read about it. it uh, I mean, online. it looks phenomenal. But the idea that I would imagine most vintage cars in I don't know what where you would put it, but in 20 years' time, would run electric. Yeah. I imagine they'll put a small electric motor in the back and say, you can't run the gas-guzzling bit in town anymore. Maybe it shows or things. But I imagine most countries in the world will go that way. So, fine. That'd be wild. I mean, they've, they've got a new... There's a concept on a... I saw recently on an article on it. There was a concept on a, an Aston that had a, a electric motor overlaid on... The, so it was using the same everything... Uh, but it had a, a small uh, electric engine uh, over the top of the, uh, the original engine. Well, that's and it was a phenomenal piece of kit. And you kind of went, oh, yeah, if they can just do that, if they can get that right, you'd go, because actually it preserves the engine as well. And you just go, well, just... Yeah, you're not messing with the gasoline yeah. motor anymore. Let's, let's look a little bit into, let's say we, we're, we're sitting down right now. It's really tough to go six and six, six cars, six watches. Well, the watch thing is, the it's, watch thing's interesting because I, you know, I go. For me, the Pateks, the sporting Pateks, yeah, are just so great, and they're just the design's just getting better. So for me, the you know the Aquanaut is oh. a phenomenal thing, and the Nautilus is a phenomenal oh. thing of beauty. Now, the grand complications and the idea that you go, you know, Patek Philippe's can kind of go for, you know, a brand new watches, you know, well over you know two million dollars. You, you can get, you can get phenomenal very expensive one-off yeah. pieces that for me is not what it's about it's that idea of going they only ever make 20 percent of their output is sports watches and it'll never be more than that the percentage of watches that they sell so but they're all there's always going to be kind of a cachet to them i think they look great on i like the fact that people don't know what they are yeah you're Most so people, right if there you're, if you're into watches you immediately go oh my god this guy's got a nautilus on that's so cool yeah uh and if you're not you just go all right what's up what 10 to 2, is it? All right, good. It's funny. My We've got to go. We've got to get lunch. My friend what? bought an Aquanaut yesterday, and he's, it's his first watch. And he he just, uh, yeah, he, he sent me the photo. Yeah. We won't name the friend. Yeah, but yes, we won't he name sent, the friend. He sent me the photo, too. It's a great-looking thing. So plain oh. so be- and really suits him. But the greatest thing he said was, I, he said, what watch should I get? This was on Tuesday. And I said, well, you know... I mean, I love Rolexes. And he goes, but I feel like if I wear that, it'll be like, oh, here comes Rolex guy. And I go, yeah, but they're really kind of entry level. Most people don't know that, you know, know that, though, he said. They think those watches cost a million dollars, where if you wear uh, a Patek, you know, uh, an Aquanaut, it just yeah. looks like a Timex to 99% of the people. Yeah, they don't I w- know. I would, uh, I would buy that. I think that's a really, it's a really great piece of logic. It really suits it. I don't know how he got it as well, because as an entry-level watch... I couldn't thing believe that, how he got it. The thing that impresses me with, with those kind of things is you kind of go, where did you go? Who's your guy? I know. I always like, like being able to that's recommend exactly your guy. That's exactly what I said. Like, where'd you get that? That's yeah. phenomenal. I couldn't believe yeah. it. You know, me, could- I mean, that's a, I think those would be two of the, the Aquanaut, the Nautilus. I mean, I think the 5712 for me is... Oh, 12? Is the you like the plain one, right? Yeah. You like the absolutely plain yep. Nautilus. I like it with a little bit of something on there. I like a few dials. Yeah, I like the. Fi- it's funny too because let's talk a little bit about the Nautilus fifty-seven eleven. Ten years ago, you could get that thing for a dollar. No one wanted it. They thought it was ugly. You know, most people, the yeah. people that loved them, loved them. You know, but I would walk by those all the time. I remember a guy was trying to sell me an, an, an Aquanaut for eight grand. And he was begging me to take it. And I it, and now whenever I see him, he goes, remember I begged you to take that Aquanaut? I'm like, I can't believe it. Taste changes too. You yeah. start to get a palate. It's like... Well, I think that's the thing about 
you know, watches, buying art, anything like that. If you buy it for you, you never make a mistake. If you buy it because it's cool right now, good luck with that. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of people are doing that at the moment with, you know, things that are popping, like, you know, your Daytonas, where they're popping. It might be near the top of the market. It might not be. I think the idea that those things at the, at the very top end, that, that you know, the, the sale last year of Paul Newman's actual watch is just, you know, that's where the market is kind of pulling that way. Because there's very few of those that are, you know, yeah. uh, you know, the authentic real deal thing. Why do you think, and it's great to talk to you about it, do you believe this, and I, I hear it over and over, a wealthy guy could get a 5711 in a minute because he could just go in and buy a couple of the other uh, paddocks and then they all of a sudden magically one appears like, oh, we have a 5711 in the back. I think, I think the thing with Patek is if, you, if you're buying a Patek and flipping it, they know. Right. They will know. They'll, they'll you know, they're, they're kind of, they're not really, well, they're certainly protesting. They're not interested in that secondary market. They're interested in people collecting, owning, wearing their watches. So if you're, you know, a dealer uh, on the secondary market, I don't think they, they, they want to discourage that. So who they choose to sell to becomes a huge factor. Yeah. Um, I think there's a, I think it's a that, you know, it's a dangerous game to play because how are they making that decision? Yeah. You know, yeah. it should be a level playing field where you just walk in and... It's definitely not been a level playing field at all, especially with Rolex lately, where you can't get any Rolexes. Well, they've of the I mean, sport watches, but it strikes me that Rolex have hit it out of the park the last five years. Yeah, their redesign of the Daytona and the the GMT two Pepsi is just phenomenal. Like it's better than it was. Like five six years ago, the last iteration of it I thought looked all right. They're yeah. kind of nice ish. They've done the work they've done with the straps, the work they've done with the dials, the work they've done with the bezels, the ceramics. The I mean, it, they just look phenomenally good. And as a and it's it's their watches that are there for. I suppose they're there for big birthdays, anniversaries, the, the, like those big moments in life. They're there for, oh, you're 40, and, you know, and she wants to get you something really special. That's the thing. And they're, they're not cheap, nope. but they're not like, it like feels like they're a, they, they get the pricing point exactly right. I mean, the Pateks are another stratosphere. It's another yeah. level of, well, I, I don't know how you can rationalize that, but the engineering is... Although I had a friend that went there recently and he was going... He's going, I went to the factory and I was kind of going, these watches are too expensive. And then he went to the factory and had a look around and went, I can't believe they're so cheap. Oh, Because yeah. he looked at the, you know, just when the, the amount that goes into these. Yeah. And it's, it's artisanal. It's genuinely an artisanal craft. They're making these watches in a way that, in, in a sense, it's the same as the, uh, you know, we talked about the Fenders from pre-65. If you buy a, um, a Bentley uh, from pre, I think it's 92, it's a genuinely handmade car. Right. I mean, it's like that was made by a guy called Derek. Yeah. In the British countryside, you know, hammering something, trying to make it look nice. I mean, it's it's a handmade That's thing. That's so true. And I think the, the watches, I suppose what you're buying as well as time is time. Yeah. You're, yeah, you're, you're right. You're buying someone's artisanal skill and it's a piece of jewelry. It's a, it's ultimately, it's a, you know, it seems to be a, a gift one gives oneself. Well, you're looking into man hours, you're looking into skills, uh, minimal people that can do that kind of thing, and now you're starting to look at it as like, well, how much is the guy's hours worth, you know, sitting there cutting and making these things, And then I suppose, you know, you're buying into, you know, a sense of masculinity and you're buying into history. Um, It's, you know, ultimately about that. I mean, I think the first thing we chatted about, because I just got it, was... I got a, uh, not an expensive watch, but I got an Omega Moonwatch, and I'd always wanted an Omega Moonwatch. I always thought that's a great design, whether you go vintage or brand new, they just look phenomenal on the wrist. I, I prefer the older because I like the curve of the, the, the glass, um, and I, I saw an auction, and it was a 1969 Moonwatch. Surely that's the year you want it from, and you know, I was chatting to a dealer, and he was going, no, 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 what you want is the 19... 19- 66, 67, because those are the watches that NASA actually got for the astronauts, so they actually got the, and you kind of go, yeah, yeah, no, I want it from the year that they landed on the moon, is exactly. what I want. Uh, and it was, you know, it's a great, fun thing to kind of search around for. The, the, the journey is the destination. I think when you buy it, you got it. Yeah. You got it forever, and you can wear it and enjoy it, and, and kind of every time you look at it, it makes you smile, and it's a, a lovely thing to own. Also, great. it's something you can search, travel with. The well, search. yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I suppose the, the you know travel with the you know the, the vintage cars is kind of it's a it's, yeah. a, it's a whole different game. It's just stuck at home. Well, a little bit. I mean, I think you you can take them out and drive them, and uh, the more you drive them, the better. Right. The um, although what what constitutes vintage as well is changing. Because obviously there's stuff that I remember now from not my childhood, but my, you know, my life that's now vintage. Oh, yeah. I bought a Porsche from 89. Off. But it's, I think it's the Porsche. I can't believe how cheap it is. I can't believe it's not a bigger deal. But it's the first of the G50 gearbox. Right. Last of the air cooled. Yeah. No power steering. It's like, and it's a Targa. And you go, well, that's all I ever wanted in a Porsche. But it's not like, it's like, you know, so initially when Porsches popped a couple of years ago with Singer drew all that attention, it was like 69 to 73 Porsches went through the roof. Yeah. And now it feels like, well, that's going to pull up the price of the other ones. And that's what happened with Ferrari, you know? Yeah. Ferrari is like, now we're looking at the Magnum PI ones and they're a fortune. And you could get one of those for like 20 grand eight years ago. Easily. Yeah. I remember one pulled up in front of the comedy store. It was a 308 gold Magnum PI model. Had a for sale sign on it. I just sat there all night while I was waiting to go on. And there it was. It's 28 grand. It was mint. I was like, oh my God, I would kill for that car right now. A gold 308, you know? That's pretty cool. Yeah, no, it is interesting the way that. But I think, again, I'd go back to the thing of going if you buy something that you love, you can't overpay for it. You can't go it's wrong. Because actually, the, the, a bad decision now in a watch is temporal. So let's say if you buy a Rolex. Yeah. Let's say you buy a Daytona today. And you overpay for it because you really want the thing. Oh, so you yeah, buy yeah. a second like, and you buy one. Off eBay. And you, well, whatever. You, you overpay. You buy stupidly yeah. on it. Um, show me that watch in 10 years' time. Tell me the story. Because yeah. in 10 years' time, you'll say to me, oh, I, I actually made out great. I thought I overpaid, but actually it's worked out great. And I think the same with kind of vintage cars. Even if you slightly overpay now, it's fine, 10 years' time. Yeah. If it's something you're looking for. If it's short-term and you want to flip the thing, really, well, you should have become a car dealer or a watch dealer then. If that's what you want to do, yeah. great, have at it. But that's a different job. Yeah, that's a different gig. Everything I own is what I call parachutes because if I get into trouble comedy-wise and I'm not working, I know, well, I've got this. It's better than having some money in the bank that I'll just burn through on dumb stuff, you know? Have something I can enjoy, and then if I do get in trouble, I've got the knowledge that I know what I bought. Well, I suppose it's that thing of like, you know, philosophies on life and kind of, you know, people don't really talk about money a lot. Yeah. Like, you know, pe- people spend their whole lives trying to make it, but then if you have a bit or if you, if you want to get it, well, what do you do with that? I mean, I always think that thing of like, getting yourself a home that you own is an incredibly important thing. And I don't know why. I don't know why it's so important. I don't know why. I mean, you know, if you go to Germany or France, it's a very different culture and it's all about renting. And they rent forever and they do not care about owning stuff. But I think there's something weirdly in my culture, certainly in British culture, about owning a home that becomes a very important thing. That's where I'm at right now all of a sudden. At 52 years old, I need to own something. So where would you you think of buying? What would you think of doing? I would definitely buy in L.A. because I still think the market is, is pretty good. Uh, as far as what you get size-wise. and uh, It's about neighborhood, though, isn't it? I mean, I always think the thing about, about Los Angeles for me would be, uh, you know, I love Los Feliz. I love it. It's I my, think it's I, like... I, 13 years there. For me, it would be the... the or the Griffith Park. Love the it. The bottom of Griffith Park. There's love kind of... It. There's a couple of streets that go up to that. You just think, well, you're sort of in the countryside. Oh. You're basically on the edge of this massive park. It's the best. Albeit with a mountain lion in it. Yeah, 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 yeah. What is it? The P P two hundred? What's that mountain lion called? I I, I just it's an call, amazing mountain lion. I call them cougars. Basically, no. There's one in sp- yeah. specific one that broke into LA Zoo oh, and yeah. ate a koala. <laughs> it can never have seen a koala before. It was broken into a zoo meant to keep animals in. Broke in, looked at a koala, went, "I'm having that." The poor fucking koala. Ow. Ate a koala and then fucked off out of the zoo again. And you've got to think that mountain lion doesn't give a fuck he doesn't give a fuck dude brilliant animal um, yeah it's an interesting thing I think buying a great house is a, is a great yeah. it, you know it's a great idea it's a great you know if you can do it if you can kind of scramble up because again the thing about real estate is the reason real estate families always keep their money is because well in 50 years time whatever you paid for that house I mean I'm looking forward to the conversation where someone goes oh this condo granddad how much did you pay and granddad says well I, I paid 
I, I only paid two and a half million dollars for this condo. <laughs> oh, granddad, you can't get a coffee for that now. <laughs> yeah, right? Well, well inflation's going to do that to us all. It's like yeah. we're all think, talking about, you know, in the watch world or whatever, people talking about million dollar, you know, Paul Newman Daytonas. Yeah. And, and that will become something that's very everyday. The million dollar bracket, the, you know, it becomes, it, it moves on. Yeah. Car-wise, what are you? Uh, are you are you American I mean, cars? Or are you? I mean, you got a Porsche, but to me, I think all my taste came from James Bond. I was into Rolex. Yeah, I really like. I really like the DB6. The DB5, I think I missed the boat on. I think the DB5 now is so much money and so iconic. I don't know to what extent, but also it's a little bit small. The yeah. DB5 is tiny. It's the size of a, uh, a BMW 3 Series. I mean, they're really, really small cars. The six has got a bit more space in it. The DB6 doesn't have wing mirrors, um, so if you get one, driving it is kind of a, uh, uh, you a know, chore. It, well, it's a challenge. Yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, a lot of it is about going, well, I'm going to accelerate, and hopefully nothing's going faster than me, because yeah, otherwise yeah. it's going to hit me. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're great fun. I mean, I think the, the Ferrari thing's really interesting, because who loves cars that doesn't want a Ferrari? Everyone wants a Ferrari. Love Ferrari. But what do you do now? I'm like, Dino's... Dinos, Dinos are are stupid. It feels like that's it's happened for the Dinos one. There's there's really interesting other ones out there. There is. I think I think the Magnum PI one's fantastic. Yeah. I love it. I think it's I I think the body is so beautiful and iconic. Uh, you know, it's pre-Testarossa where you get into that cheesy Miami Vice kind of where it looks like a kit on a car. You know, body parts. I never got into that. I like the last of the 308s and that stuff in black. It's interesting. It becomes a bit of a, an arms race with Lamborghini then in terms of who could be the most gauche. Um, although I don't mind it. You know, I like the Lamborghinis. I like the story on Lamborghini. You know the story on Lamborghini? I don't because I never so got into uh, him. Well, the thing about Lamborghinis, right? So he's a guy making tractors. Right? Yeah. Made tractors. Made a ton of money. Went into the Ferrari dealership and they wouldn't sell him one. Oh, that's right. I do know this story. They wouldn't sell him a Ferrari. Yeah. And he went... Fuck you guys, I'll make my own. So got these guys to make the Lamborghinis and then went and went just, you know, it's almost like the Spinal Tap. But, yo, you make one that goes to 10? Yeah, but this goes to 11. Yeah, yeah, I remember Insane. that And story. somehow they've still got that mindset now. It's like going, the guys that 11. opened the Roxy in LA. They couldn't get into the Troubadour. So they said, fuck you, we'll open our own cool club. <laughs> and they're you know, two of them very well. Yeah, yeah. What American cars are you a uh, fan of? Like, I would do you probably like new go cars or old? Uh, old, always yeah. old. Always I, I old. mean, the, the you know the um, uh, I guess the AC Cobra. I've always thought was just a uh, phenomenal yeah. bit of you know machinery. What a car! Just beautiful, and I quite like the kind of um, uh, the Shelby. Uh, you know that whole that kind of era of like you know and you know the car from bullet or the it, it tends yeah. to be things that are linked to yeah um you know great movies or great you know you've seen them somewhere yeah i'm just trying to think what the the kind of the ultimate american car would be it's probably stingrays from the oh, 50s 50 and stingrays I, I haven't, but i've never driven one i've never driven one and and the the automatic gearbox worries me that i would go all right i'm buying something that's i'm not quite sure if this is going to be any fun because yeah. is it a bumper car I mean, I've got, you know, day-to-day, I, -day I drive a, 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 an enormous um, uh, Range Rover Stretch Vogue autobiography machine. Oh, yeah? And I'll, I'll never have a better car than that. I mean, there isn't a better car than that made. Yeah. It's an armchair yeah. built around uh, with a tank. I mean, it's just phenomenal. And the 0-60 is amazing. The performance is incredible. The tech is great. The switch gear is beautiful. It's wonderful. But somehow, and that being an automatic makes all the sense in the world. But if you're going to drive a car, you go, well, yes, I want a, I want a gearbox to Gotta mess around with. Got a gearbox. With. Yeah. How about the Defender 90s? I'm a huge mm. fan of that. So is John Mayer. Defender 90s being my favorite. But those things, when you get in them, they're so slow and, and tankish, you know, compared to... But, man, I love them. Yeah, they're, they're... And they're so overpriced now. Well, yeah, but, I mean, you know, I think there's nothing like stopping making them. That, that's yeah. that's, always, the, that's yeah, always the thing. Yeah. We're not doing any more of these. Yep. Um, yeah, I like those, but not as not as much. I mean, it's kind of the sports car thing. Is is the I don't know what the what the American car of choice is. I'm trying to think what the other kind of really beautiful. Well, I mean, you can really get into me. You get into the Mopars. You know, you get into the Roadrunners, the Hemi cars, the Challengers. All that mine is the totally absurd, over the top Superbird, the one with the giant fin on top. 
that they uh, raced at the Daytona, you know, and and uh, what's his name had one. Yeah, that kind of that Joe Dirt, you know. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that being kind of a cool. Those are just weird cars. Yeah, it's so absurd that they made that car, and you could go in and buy it on the showroom. An actual race car that went 190 miles well, an hour. that's a bit like the, you know, the European version of that would be, from the Far East, would be like things like the Subaru Impreza. Right, right. Which I always thought was just a phenomenal bit of kit. Like one of those in like the bright blue with the gold wheels. Oh, I love and that. And it's just like, you go, oh, this, I mean, it comes as standard with a blue light underneath it to make it look haunted. Just yeah. Crazy vehicles. Yeah, I had a really WRX crazy. two years ago. Oh, they're great. Smurf I mean, blue. Mm. This thing was fire, man. Yeah, they're they're pretty phenomenally quick. Cars are just incredible. What's your favorite car ever made? Um, I I do like the DB6 Aston Martin yeah. a lot. Um, I oh I mean I suppose in recent history something like the Bentley Continental I thought was the best relaunch of something that was beautiful in the past, and they I think they got that kind of right. I mean, the ultimate car, it's, it's very hard to know. It's very hard to kind of, you know, I think that's the reason you kind of want six, because yeah. you kind of want lots of different things for different occasions. Absolutely. I, don't, I, I quite like the new Rolls Royces. Oh, yeah? I really like the Ghost. I really think it's a great, and the Wraith is a fabulous car. Oh, yeah. I took one of those out for a spin and just thought, well, this is, this is the shit. But I don't think I could drive one. I think there's something where I need to put on about five stone yeah. and be about 10 years older. Or start, have someone drive you in it. Start smoking cigars, <laughs> and then you know, and then I can get one of these. Yeah. But it's basically the the Rolls Royce Wraith is it's a bit like buying a yacht and going. Well, I don't really want to go on the water, but I'd like a yacht. Yeah, like that's Land what it yacht. feels like. Yeah, Land yacht. That's what it is. What was it? It was completely silent inside, right? You uh, don't hear nothing. Yeah, and you don't hear nothing, and that's even with it. You know, and then the, you know, take the roof off, and it just. It's kind of, it's otherworldly. Yeah, I love the look of that thing. Yeah. Are you a motorcycle guy? I'm not allowed a motorcycle. Oh, My wow. missus is pretty strict. Oh, wow. And she's, I would definitely kill myself. I, mean, I broke married? my wrist on a, on a quad bike oh, yeah. uh, earlier in the year. That. Just like, and you know what? I mean, I was going too fast. And you know what? I shouldn't have been masturbating. But I, <laughs> I, I really took it out. Rubbing one out like quadding. Yeah, but I, I, I injure myself a lot when I'm, you know, doing any kind of sports or whatever. I'm, I'm a little petal, so I'm a motorbike. I'm not allowed. I would, I mean, for those, it would be all British as well. Yeah. Oh I think yeah. Buying British is kind of a, I don't know. Maybe there's something, there's something kind of underlying that the, the pride in. Uh, you know, there's some cool British cars. Oh, there is. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Oh, maybe an old Merc would be uh, maybe next on the list. A Mercury? I uh, know a Merc. Oh, uh, oh Mercedes okay. from the oh yeah, but a 1950s or 60s. Did you see that Gullwing barn find yesterday? The red no. one. Oh my God! A barn find Gullwing. Unbelievable! I'll send it over. I to mean, you. red original wow. owner. It's got a sticker on the back window: NRH National Rifle Association. Wow! NRA, why did they? I mean, why did they get it? I mean, uh, why was it? Was it Germany? Was it? No, no, it was in the states, dude. You got to see this thing. It's red. It's got the tan, rare red with tan, uh, a cream uh, interior. Are you, okay, what's your, here's, here's the thing. I'm going to have to go in a minute, but okay. here's, here's the thing. Yeah. What, what is your website of choice? Because for me, yeah. there's a couple of, I really like this thing for watches. I really like this. I've got a classic car site. Yeah. Um, it's called Classic Driver which you, you basically kind of go into and you do your kind of, oh, like, favorites. And yeah. you kind of list all these cars that you... And it's global. It's like around the world of, like, all these cars, how much are they? What would you buy? Yeah. It's just... I go to bring a trailer. Oh. God, bring that, a trailer. Thing's, that thing's brutal. Chrono 24? Have you got Chrono 24? Oh, yeah, I love it. So great for watches. How about this store over here, uh, Material Good? What's Material Good? I got to take you there. Go on, what, what do they do? It is a... It's this crazy... Ballers, it's this baller store where you take an elevator up to the second floor. You go in, they serve you whiskey, they got couches, and they just unwield all the most luxury items ever, like vintage Louis Vuitton trunks, paddocks. They got Rolexes. They got like a... an old, this? Oh, I'll, I'll send you there tomorrow, man. Oh, they no, get, I'm, I'm heading out. I'm oh, heading yeah, back, but, but I'll give you the address. It's well, called let me know Material Good. And wow. these two dudes have put together the ultimate. It's like if you opened up, um, like, uh, what's that magazine called? Um, 
The it's one, like, with it's all, not like uh, Stephen all, King needful things, is it? Are they going like to end up? The high, they're going to end up owning our souls. Yeah, yeah, right. We go in there like, wow. Well, I can't think enough uh, for uh, sitting down. No, and it's, I mean it's a me. pleasure. I, it, it does strike me as a sort of thing. It's a great idea for a show because uh, I talking about cars, talking about watches, whatever. You, you just add infinitum. You could just they're fun things to discuss. And oh, I love it. I think there's there's something about maybe there's something about traveling around. Maybe there's something about being peripatetic in our lifestyle that lends ourselves to going actually you know watches and cars and yeah. being able and you know now being able to kind of shop for them online and kind of look at them endlessly and just instagram whoa such a fun thing and actually they're sort of the few things that you can't buy online yeah i mean who's ever bought a watch online you'd have to be out of your mind no to buy an way. ebay ebay a watch what well, i mean good luck good luck yeah. if you have yeah you're out of your but mind cars and things you have to go and kick the tires and yeah you know you got to get underneath up. that car you know I always looked at it as like I said, here's two humans we have in common that we do comedy, but we're totally different people, but not really. Once we start, I look at the watch on your wrist, we catch eye glances, and then boom, a conversation happens. Oh, oh man, you're fucking me up with that. Get out of here. <laughs> not terrible, is it? Oh my God, I love it. Rose you. gold, yeah. Rose gold Nautilus. Oh, yeah! You know. I love you, dude. With the, with the slightly smaller strap, the uh, yeah, yeah. There's guys like you that that drive me to get better and funnier and work hard. <laughs> For real, <laughs> it makes me want to work hard. I'm like, I'm gonna do this, and I say that every day. Love I can't it. thank you enough, man. Uh, you got Instagram. I'm not on the Instagram. Oh, well, no, maybe I am on the Instagram. I'm on Twitter, certainly. Twitter. I think I'm on the Instagram, but it's like just tall promo-y stuff. Right. Or, you know. Jimmy Carr, though, on uh, Twitter? Yeah, at Jimmy Carr. Yeah, that's me. And then, uh, you know, touring around the place. I'm always around. You got any state states coming up? I got no state states. I've just launched this new show on Netflix called The Fix, where we try and fix the world's problems with like a panel show. And hopefully, if that does well, we'll start to tour again this year, next year. But I can draw a crowd here. Yeah. I can sort of, you know, play a decent room in a, in a, in a town. So I think it's a weird thing that's happened the last couple of years where people just, they watch what they want to watch. Yeah. They don't care what's on TV anymore. Nope. Not Listen, I'm, I'm out. I'm going to see you soon. Thank you so much. I love Pleasure, it. Right man. there. There he is, Thank Jimmy you. Carr, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Let There Be Talk. Keep the candles lit. Happy, happy 2019.